This episode of Device Talks Weekly is brought to you by Device Talks Boston. We'll be hosting Device Talks Boston on September 24th and 25th. That's in Boston, of course, my hometown. If you'd like to be part of Device Talks Boston, please go to devicetalks.com for more information. We'd love to have you as part of our program, in our audience, or as one of our sponsors. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salemi, welcome back to the Vice Talks Weekly Podcast. Great to have you here. We've got a fantastic episode ahead. I had a chance to speak with Scott Whitaker, the CEO of Advamed. Scott uh, has been leading Advamed for a few years, but he has previously been involved with pandemic preparedness when he was with HHS. This was about 15 years ago. So Scott has an interesting take on how MedTech responded to the pandemic challenge. We also talked a bit about the FDA, where things may be headed with EUAs and some housekeeping uh, material as well. We talked a bit about the annual meeting, what his ex expectations are there. We also I had a chance to talk with uh, an old friend of mine, John Norris of Silicon Valley Bank. John is uh, really well known for his presentations about venture data and he tracks the biopharma and medtech and digital health industries very closely. John and I talked about the Q1 performance of medtech startups. You might be surprised with how things went, but uh, we'll talk a bit of also about Q2 and where things are headed there. You might not be surprised about where they're headed. So it was great to connect with John. We'll have a write-up on Mass Device as well, and uh, I think you'll enjoy both conversations. But now, of course, Let's kick off this podcast with my conversation with my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, Executive Editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Here I am with my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker. Chris Newmarker, how are you today? Hey, doing all right. Very, uh, very busy over here, we're right in the height of uh, earnings season. So we're turning the stories out. I know. I we're turning them out, Tom. I always feel guilty when I'm making you do this podcast, and you've got quarterly reports to write, but uh, <laughs> got some interesting news to 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 follow up on too. Uh, Abiumed made a, a very uh, curious and COVID nineteen related acquisition that it announced last night. Tell us a bit about what Abiumed's up to. Yeah, for people who don't know, Abiumed they uh, you know they make uh, you know implantable medical devices for you know that are cardio related, such as you know the um, you know, a catheter-delivered uh, Impella heart pump. But uh, they uh, announced yesterday evening that they acquired a young uh, company called Breathe that has, you know, what's described as a compact artificial lung. And, um, you know, you know this, this could help people who are, you know, very sick no matter what, but it could potentially be used against coronavirus. Breathe has a, you know, is, is, has an application already in for 510K clearance. Um, you know, investors like the news. Uh, Abbey Med stock, I mean, we're talking here on Thursday morning, and Abbey Med stock is up 15%. So, I mean, that, that definitely seems to, uh, it's an interesting strategy. Um, investors like it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if we see more uh, medical device companies saying like, hey, look, we've, we're acquiring a company that has something that could be helpful right now in the middle of this, uh, you know, global crisis. Yeah, that's a great point. Helpful right now, but also uh, a sign maybe of preparing for the future. And as I uh, talked with Scott Whitaker, actually just talked to him a little while ago, about how the industry is uh, is responding to COVID-19 and maybe what the industry can do to uh, prepare for 
uh, the next, unfortunately, if it happens, or let's hope it doesn't happen, the next pandemic. So let's hear what Scott Whitaker has to say. Well, Scott Whitaker, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you today. Thanks. So here we are. It's the end of April. Uh, it's been uh, quite a 2020. I wonder at this point, we're not necessarily out of the woods yet, but uh, what has been uh, your assessment of the medtech industry and how it's responded to uh, this worldwide crisis? Well, Tom, it's, uh, you know this very well, but uh, it's been an amazing performance, if I can say it that way, by the medtech industry broadly. From the initial outbreak, we were very concerned about hospital capacity and personal protective equipment, which, as you know, all of our companies make, to the next stage, which was ventilator and ventilator scale-up to make sure we were meeting the demand. And then now, on the front edge of the diagnostics testing, which is now going to move into serology and antigen testing as well, mm -hmm. uh, this is an industry that has helped meet the challenge, hit it uh, head on really, I think, um, and is delivered in a meaningful way. So I, you know, I'm just really proud of the work all of our companies have done. Um, and I do wonder uh, where would we be without MedTech? And uh, thankfully we've been there, not we as AdwinMed as much as we as our companies, those who work in this space uh, to save the day in many ways. And we're proud of that. Yeah, it is, a, it is amazing that uh, our industry is often overlooked by the farm industry that tends to get more attention. And not only did MedTech sort of get drawn front and center, but ventilators and diagnostics, two areas within MedTech that don't necessarily get all the spotlights were, were really called into action. So when this started, did you have concerns about ventilator supply, PPE supply, and how did the industry, and how did your concerns play out so it's a really good question, Tom. Uh, to be honest with you, if we're perfectly honest, in January, um, I wouldn't say my concerns about ventilators and PPE supplies were all that great. Um, in a previous life, I was chief of staff at HHS. Um, and so I knew about pandemic planning. We did a lot of it after 9-11, both from a bioterrorism standpoint, and then later as we got into 04 and 05, planning for more of a flu pandemic. So. Mm -hmm. I realized the issue set that could be a problem, but I wouldn't say at the beginning of this year, I knew it was gonna be this acute. Um, you got the sense that in February, and as we moved into early March, we were getting ready to get hit with something that could be potentially catastrophic. And I think it was at that point in time when we started to ramp up our internal activities to help prepare for helping the government meet the challenges that could be the case. Mm -hmm. And we're glad we did that now. And I, you know, and uh, I think it helped put us in a, in a better position. You're, it's interesting that you were involved in that planning a decade or so ago. It's obviously been a, a hot topic of conversation. What was your assessment of, uh, of our readiness as a, I guess as an industry, but also as a, as a country? Yeah, I, th I think as an industry, our readiness was uh, frankly excellent um, because we were in a position to react and respond to the, uh, the demand that we got hit with very quickly. And I think we did that very well. I think the government and, I, you know, I, Tom, honestly, I'm not one that tends to look back and criticize, particularly in the middle of a crisis. But I'm not sure the U.S. government or any government for that matter can be fully prepared for a pandemic with a novel virus. Mm -hmm. And that's what the case was here, obviously, with coronavirus and COVID-19. 
it was not an, another iteration of the flu like H1N1, for example, or swine flu, or some of those we had some experience dealing with. I think the novel nature of this virus made it very difficult for the U.S. government to be fully prepared. Um, with that said, I think it, the honest answer is we weren't, we weren't fully ready for it. Um, there were uh, components that were in place and structures that were in place that I think now reflecting back are encouraging. Um, and we've seen that play out to some degree. But I, I've said on a couple of other interviews, uh, Tom, it's, it's less are you prepared and more how you respond. And I do feel like it's not perfect, but mm -hmm. I do feel like the response from the federal government has been good. Um, particularly their engagement with the private sector to try to turn this into a public-private uh, partnership and initiative. If you think about what's going on at the FDA um, in emergency use authorizations, both on the ventilator side, to some degree on PPE and sterilization of PPE, and then of course on diagnostic testing, that's been pretty remarkable and uh, may be overlooked right now. I think we'll look back eventually and say, wow, I can't believe how many tests got approved is so quickly, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a very good story, I think, on response for the public and private sector. Uh, but in the middle of it, it's hard to appreciate that. That's a great point. Do you have a sense, speaking of the FDA and the EUAs, what happens when the smoke clears and, and we emerge from the crisis? Do those orders remain in effect? What would your expectation be for the approvals going forward? And in addition to that, I guess, do you see the uh, the the relation your industry's relationship with the FDA changing at all because there has been these moments of sort of cooperation that have helped speed things along? Yeah, I, I've been in this industry now for a bit over four years, and our relationship with FDA has uh, steadily improved. Um, we have a very good relationship with them going into the crisis, and I think coming out of it will be strong as well. Really good collaboration at the center level. Um, and then at the FDA commissioner level with Dr. Hahn, who I've known for a while, and I, I just think he's done a remarkable job during this time of crisis. So I think coming out of it, it will be very strong. I think it's a really interesting question about what do you do with EUAs uh, post-pandemic once this crisis settles down. I sent a, a letter to uh, the vice president yesterday, um, and we, I talked in that letter about the need to be prepared for post-COVID related regulatory and reimbursement challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things we identified was EUAs, that there needs to be an appropriate path for moving a product that was EUA into the normal uh, regulatory process without going back and having to restart. Exactly what that is, I don't know that I can articulate for you clearly today, but there needs to be a process. I don't think we've ever seen this happen on the scale that it's happened this time. And so I think collectively, the government and industry need to work towards something to provide stability to those that are already on the market and a, and a, and a process that makes sense. So from AdverMed's perspective, there is not, there's not a process in, in place for, for what's next for EUAs. There, uh, I think in, I think FDA believes there's a process in place. I couldn't articulate it for you today, Tom, exactly what that is. And I think mm -hmm. partially because uh, this, is, uh, this is unprecedented in nature, right? The scale at which and the number of EUAs that have been approved in a short period of time. So mm -hmm. it's natural that hiccups could occur. And I just think we want to make sure we're staying connected with FDA on that. 
Speaking about non-emergency FDA issues or approvals, uh, there's been a, a slowdown. I think I don't know if any PMAs have been approved this year as a result, and I may not be accurate with that number, but it certainly has been, from my position, a slowdown. Do you do you feel like the industry is is uh, being held back in a way because so much time and attention is being correctly and rightly so paid to the pandemic or other companies? sort of having to, to slow their expectations because so much attention is being given to COVID-19? Yeah, you know, it, it would be natural if that were to occur, given the bandwidth challenges that FDA has right now. Um, I, I have not uh, heard from a company on a specific product and a major problem with that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think in general, we have to assume that there may be a little bit of a slowdown coming out. We've also had a conversation with FDA. They feel comfortable that there's not going to be a slowdown. Um, but I think honestly, Tom, we just need to get through this crisis and determine that at the time uh, once we come out of it. The challenge will be if this goes on much longer, right? Right. Um, and uh, if, if the trend, which we're starting to see now, which is a downward trend in the outbreak in, in most states around the country, if that trend continues, it's probably not going to be a major problem for the industry. If it escalates back up and we have outbreaks again, um, and then you know major requests for new diagnostic tests, serology tests, medical equipment, whatever it might be, that that then could become a problem, I think. But I, I think right now, I feel like they'll manage through it okay. Not perfectly, but okay. And how about the uh, the use of the, the, the DPA, the Defense Production Act? Uh, how did that play out into MedTech's response to this crisis? Was it, was it necessary? Did it help? And how do we see that, uh, that concluding? Yeah, I was very concerned about it early on because I did not understand fully uh, exactly how they intended to use it. I think today, two months into the crisis, um, I think they've used it in a way that has been appropriate. Um, there were two things that initially concerned me, that they, the possibility that the government could come in and take over a plan and begin to operate that and direct it. That hasn't been what they've done as mm -hmm. a general rule. Um, I think that the appropriate use of it in the ventilator space was when they activated a non-medical device plant and then use that to scale up manufacturing of sort of the, the lower level ventilator machines. That seemed appropriate. The second thing that worried me is if they used it incorrectly, the impact it could have on our trade relationships with other partners. Mm -hmm. If they used it in a way that uh, controlled and contained our ability to export and import, that could have been a problem as well. I think we need to still be concerned about it. It hasn't played out that way yet. The third thing they did, which I think was very good, was during the ventilator crisis when we had challenges around, uh, potential challenges in some cases, real challenges in other cases, around component parts and access to component parts coming in from other countries. They moved them up the list of priorities for shipments coming into the country, imported products across the board. So by having the DPA in place and prioritizing those, it allowed those products to get into the country more quickly and not get held up um, at ports of entry. So. That was a very good use of DPA. So my, my assessment now is they used it appropriately, but it's still in place. This is not over. And I think we need to make sure we're continuing that dialogue so it's not used in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I'm thinking just of some of the, the back and forth and exchanges that centered around the DPA and, and 
things on Twitter and such. Do you, do you think the med tech industry overall was treated fairly during this? Yeah. Yeah. I think fairly is, is the right way to describe it. Um, uh, sometimes I think the DPA was used as a, as, as a threat, uh, for lack of a better expression, uh, to warn companies that if you don't do something, this could be something we do as the government. Um, I don't really like that, but that's sort of the reality we deal with um, mm -hmm. when you're in a crisis like that. And I, I uh, in reflection, I think generally it's been fair and appropriately applied. And going forward, what do we as an industry need to do to plan for something like this in the future? Do we need to look at inventory? Do we need to look at, uh, at the supply chain? What, will, what role will Advamed play in sort of helping us prepare for hopefully the, the, the next pandemic that we hope never will come. Yeah. So, you know, from my perspective, there's one thing that you can always do, um, and that is early preparation by fully stocking the national stockpile on medical supplies and equipment that we may need and have a plan in place for scaled up production in the event that it does hit. I do feel like this is a slight criticism, I feel like, um, in hindsight, a lot of the personal protective equipment and other stockpiling was somewhat depleted after, I think it was H1N1 in, in 2008 or nine. I can't remember the date exactly, Tom, but mm -hmm. um, there was a bit of a depletion of the stockpile and it never got fully refilled. And to be honest with you, I, I also think that the uh, stockpile itself is probably not high enough um, or full enough um, as a general rule what the expectations are for that to prevent shortages in the future and so I think going forward we as an industry and government together can work on better understanding what capacity should be um, at the stockpile and how we stockpile those products part of that is guaranteeing the market exists right so mm -hmm. It's one of the appropriate roles of government in, I think, a crisis situation. It's not fair to expect our companies to have in place plans to scale up mass production when there's no market that exists, right? And if the government, government through the stockpile or other means, creates a market for us to scale to meet a perceived demand, then we can do that very easily. But if there's no predictability in there, it's very hard for us to do. And I think Together, that's something that we can tackle and be more prepared next time. And how about on the supply chain side of things? Do we need to make? Uh, do we need to bring more of that production to the U.S.? Yeah, it's it it is a great and difficult question. I think the answer is we do need more of it at home, but I think we also need to recognize the supply chain is global in nature, and that's not going to change overnight. Um, and uh, to some degree, having those trade relationships. Um, staying very, very strong uh, is important. You know, you, you're, you're sympathetic to the concept of buy America, build America, manufacture in America, and it makes sense on a basic level. Um, but I just think the world's a little bit more complicated than that. So pr probably, Tom, it's a combination, right? We need to do more manufacturing in this country and have more capability. But we also need to have strong relationships globally. So in the event of a disaster, we can scale up uh, manufacturing capacity elsewhere. Most of our companies, while a lot of them are U.S.-based, a lot of our companies are multinational, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, you're not just going to stop manufacturing overseas. It's not going to happen. 
So let's recognize that reality and think about how we can have relationships and trade policies in place that support both American manufacturing and a robust supply chain globally as well. And uh, three more questions. The first one is about uh, the tariff. You folks are looking for uh, an expansion of, of the, the, the relief of the tariff relief that uh, right. started a month ago. Just give us a little bit yeah. of insight on that. Yeah, very, very. Yeah, very important from our perspective. We've never been big fans of the tariffs that were put in place. Um, I understand what they were trying to accomplish. I, I'm just not a big fan of it. Um, and so we, we believe that continuing to exempt more medical products from uh, those tariffs is the right policy to put in place to allow us to get product in the United States. Um, to their credit, they've been responsive so far. USTR has been very responsive so far. Uh, we feel like now is not the time to revert back to a more restrictive tariff policy, and that's why we're asking for an extension of that. Okay, question two is a big one. So other than the things we've talked about, which is a lot, any other lessons that uh, you're taking away from this experience? Any, any changes that we need to see in, in how MedTech operates uh, in the future? Yeah, so here's what I would say. The biggest lesson uh, is that government and private entity are partners and we need to stay very connected through this process. Uh, we don't want to cede private industry manufacturing or innovation to the government, but we need to stay very um, involved together because you're not going to solve a crisis or be prepared for a crisis if it's government only. It's just not going to happen. I think one of the, one of the biggest mistakes or, or flaws was early on when the CDC sort of bungled that first test, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that was not the private sector that bungled it. Uh, there weren't mistakes made by the private sector companies. There were, there were mistakes made by um, career officials at CDC. And it's not to criticize, it's just to recognize the reality that it takes both of us to be successful. And so whether it's this, in, this administration or if a new administration comes in following the election in November, I think in either sense, we have to recognize the importance of both a strong and robust plan by the government and a strong and robust private sector to make sure that we're able to implement the plans that are in place. You can't do one and not the other. Excellent. And the final question is a easy yes or no, if you want it to be, will there be a, an annual meeting in October? The, the answer today is yes. And so uh, whether we do it in person, which we hope, or whether we do it virtually or perhaps a blend of the two, Tom, um, our plan is to move forward. We're hopeful that by, by October, uh, things have passed uh, and it will give us a chance to gather together, uh, celebrate the tremendous accomplishments of this industry, and uh, then continue to plan for how we can collaborate together going forward, hopefully in a state of normalcy, but if not, uh, in a form to be more prepared as we go into the next crisis. I hope we'll so we look forward to seeing everybody there, I hope. Absolutely. I hope, hope it will be normal and I uh, look forward to seeing you there and thank you for, uh, for the time today. Yeah, thank you, Tom. And thanks for having me on. Uh, and thanks for all you do as well. Uh, really appreciate it. All right. Well, again, thank you, Scott Whitaker, for joining us on the podcast. I hope you folks enjoyed that conversation. Now, let's connect with John Norris of SVB. Again, John is a, a data guru. He tracks the venture data 
both acquisitions and investments like no one else. And John and I spoke specifically about uh, venture investments in Q1 for medtech companies. I was a bit surprised with the results, but uh, I'll let John uh, take it from here. John Norris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Great to be on. We haven't talked about the Q1 results for device fundraising yet, so I have no idea what's coming down the pike. What do Q1 numbers for medtech investments look like? For, for context, you know, 2019 was actually a, an up year, about 15% up in terms of total dollars invested into venture-backed device companies from 18 to 19. And that was right around $4.9 billion. And when I look at Q1 2020 numbers, uh, in the first quarter, we were at $1.2 billion. So in fact, that basically puts it on pace for the 2019 numbers, which was very good numbers. But obviously, you know, we really didn't see any significant sort of, you know, backdrop of the pandemic uh, in which we find ourselves currently uh, a part of. Uh, really for the whole quarter. I mean, now most of the deals that were in the queue to close sort of did close, at least anecdotally, talking to the venture folks that, that I work with quite a bit at, at most of the, the similar valuations. And so all the Q1 numbers really are sort of a function of sort of the go forward, non-interrupted, you know, venture world. Now we're in a totally different world. That's interesting. I mean, I, I, as I said in an earlier podcast, I recently bought a house and we had made the offer in early March and closed on it late March. And at that point, we needed a house. We weren't going to, weren't going to not close on it. But uh, venture capitalists are notoriously, they get spooked easily. And, I, and I'm surprised that you didn't see a decline in March, at least even anecdotally, that, uh, that a lot of people might have just taken their money and head for the hills. You know, I think the ones that were at the one inch line and ready to go over uh, pretty much got done. Mm -hmm. I will say for deals that were earlier in the negotiation process and probably actually, frankly, aren't even closed at this point or maybe just closed, valuation definitely was a point to discuss and was reopened, at least from what I have heard from some of my conversations with investors. Um, so, so the ones that were right at the edge that finally did close and probably got posted to Q1 2020, you know, everything was pretty much done at that point. So uh, there wasn't reopening. There weren't, you know, term sheets pulled, at least um, anecdotally to my knowledge. Interesting. So again, uh, quarter to quarter, Q1 19 to Q1 20, what were the dollar figures again? So, you know, so if you look at the full year 2019 at about 4.9 billion, mm -hmm. and then if it was Q1 2020 at 1 1.2, so that gets you about 4.8, which is sort of right on track. Um, and I think so, so that's kind of on track. And then if you look at series A, which is the other data point that you sort of look at, you know, series A actually was, was down a little bit more than I would have, than I would have guessed. And so I'm just pulling it up to give you context. Last year, there were 105 series A deals for the full year. Mm -hmm. And that raised $770 million. So 105 deals, 770 million. Um, which was down from 2018 in terms of dollars. Um, it's probably about 15% down from 2018. But so far in Q1, if you look at it, there were about 21 deals uh, for $200 million total. Mm -hmm. So that's um, you know, about on pace to what we saw in 2019. Again, not sort of reaching what we saw in 2018, which was almost a billion dollars in Series A funding. 
So the the what was the total number of deals in Q1 2020? So the total number of deals were 20. 20, 20. Excuse me, 20, 21 device deals for a total of $200 million. You know, the biggest deals that I had in my uh, uh, book was Sheratronics with a, a big $36 million round and then mm -hmm. Zap Surgical raised an $81 million round. And those were really the only two deals that raised more than 20 million in a Series A in Q1, at least according to my records at this point. And obviously I, I leverage a lot of the pitch book data and there is some backdating. And so some of those sure. deals that may have closed right at the end of the quarter aren't necessarily in pitch book yet. Um, so that's, you know, the, that's our best estimate anyway. Historically, are more deals usually done at the end of the year uh, or is, is Q4 usually a bigger quarter rather than Q1? How did, is, there, is there a natural pace to this sort of investing? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And I think, you know, what I found, if you start to look at, you know, a number of years back to back to back to back, that there's really no rhyme or reason for the ebb and flow. And it does pretty much even out. Um, so I do, when, when I've looked at things in Q1 and tried to be predictive of the year, um, I think a fair assessment is just multiplying it by four just mm -hmm. to get a sense of what the year looks. Any interesting investors coming into the MedTech deals in Q1? You know, I did see, you know, uh, both Varian and Levanova both came into some, some, some deals on the early stage side. I thought that was kind of interesting. A couple um, Hong Kong and, and Chinese corporate investors mm -hmm. uh, participated in rounds. So you're starting to, you're seeing that um, as a continuing um, uh, part of the device culture. Whereas I know that, you know, there's always that question with, you know, issues relating to CFIUS and, you know, how those deals were going to get um, approved one way or the other, or the ability of, the, of, of investors in Asia to, to be active and actually put dollars into venture back deals. Um, we, we continue to see some of that happening. And so, so, so seeing corporate getting involved early stages is, is great to see. Um, but again, I think, you know, when you go into April and you start moving on, I think the world has, you know, dramatically changed. Uh, you know, obviously, yeah, the, the ability of these companies to have clinical trials has been impacted severely. You know, the ability to, you know, be, even to be able to have, you know, one, to have these clinical trials, um, and two, to be able to get, you know, one of, one of the, the, the people from the company into the, into the surgery, into the operating room to help with these clinical trials are impacted. Mm -hmm. And frankly, you're seeing just a lot of folks, even you know, elective procedures, it's easy to say, oh, people are putting those things off. But even non-elective procedures, you know, there's that fear of going to the hospital and wanting to even put yourself into that scenario. And so that's been impacted too. And it's hard to know when that's going to change. If you were collecting this information, you had blinders on, you had no idea what was going on in the world. Did you see any signs in March that the temperature's changing, that, that, that we perhaps are beginning to slope downward, that, that April will be different than March? And if so, what were some of those signs? I would say most of the tone of what we saw change was probably a little bit later in March. Mm -hmm. I would say the last week and a half to two weeks of March is really when people realize that, you know, the world has changed. And that's when what we really saw start to happen was the venture investors that invest in device really starting to critically look at their portfolio and understand the ramifications of, you know, staying at home and the impact of hospitals 
and understanding that, you know, things could get closed for a significant amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what we really started to see was, you know, again, you know, venture folks really looking at their portfolio and saying, okay, you know, let's assume that, you know, there's no revenue for three to six months. You know, what does that look like? Let's say things open up in Q4 and you start to get, you know, revenue back then. You know, what does that look like? What does your cash burn look like? How many employees do you have? How can we structure something to, you know, if we can tread water, let's tread water. But if we have to do something significant, then you have to think about, you know, furloughing workers Mm -hmm. or cutting back cash burn or, you know, not doing a clinical trial and delaying on that while you still have a company and are burning cash on a monthly basis. These are all very difficult, you know, um, things for, for investors and companies to have to do. But it really started to come to a head, I'd probably say in the last week of March. Interesting. And, and final question. I mean, you've been tracking these numbers for a long time. You've been through a few booms and a few busts. If you had to make an educated guess of what the next three quarters will look like, what does it look like in terms of numbers and deals committed? But also, what does it look like in terms of funding opportunities that startups may pursue different sort of strategies? Do you, Is there sort of a playbook for running and raising money in this sort of environment. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're asking me to, to do these predictions and it's, <laughs> you know, I, I, I like to, to end discussions on a high note, but it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do that in, in the current environment we're in, but, you know, to, to, to think that we're going to see maybe a 30% plus decline in the amount of capital invested into device venture. I don't think that would be um, overstating things a lot. Um, I think, you know, Series A is going to be impacted, especially as you as as one investors are really dealing with their portfolio right now. And it was already a small group of Series A investors that were out there to begin with. And frankly, we did see a lot of folks that were not traditional investors do a lot of Series A deals. And you have to wonder, you know, how are those folks either venture business or if they're a corporate, how their how their business is being impacted by the coronavirus and their you know their um, excitement and ability to make new investments. And you sort of wonder about that. I think where there's really interesting opportunities are probably for these companies that, um, you know, potentially we're thinking about going IPO in the next year to year and a half, the ones that are actually into revenue and have a product and have a good investor set. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's opportunities for investors that want to continue to support those companies probably at valuations that you know are are when you look back on it are really good for the new investors coming in but are not so drastically uh hampering that these companies aren't interested and so there there could be sort of a win-win there where you know this new capital comes in to help people get through you know this next six month period plus so that once revenues once you know um you know, these, these procedures are starting up again, that sort of revenue comes back. Mm-hmm. And nobody quite knows how fast that revenue will come back. But these companies are doing well right now. And you'd have all intensive purposes to believe that those companies will do well in the future when things start to open back up now. So I think that, that the sort of these late stage opportunities where all of a sudden, sort of the tourists that were coming in and bidding up those deals are not necessarily as active. It's more of a role for maybe the traditional venture investors that have a strategy of investing through the long term to come in and really help support these sort of later stage companies. So I think that's if if there's anywhere where a lot of the capital is probably going to go, it's going to probably be going to those type of companies. 
Great. Well, great to talk to you. We've talked for a long time and it's, it's nice to have a comfortable, some comfort food for the ears and sort of hearing your report on, on Q1. It just gives me a little bit of normalcy. So it's nice to have the connection, even though the message is a little, a little uncertain at the moment. But uh, thanks for, for joining us on the podcast, John. Yeah, I, I always love talking with you, Tom. So stay safe and be well. All right, Chris, there you have it. Another Q1 report that was strong, but uh, some warnings about what's, uh, what's coming in the future. We're not sure what uh, the venture numbers will look like in, in Q2. We'll have to wait for, uh, for July to see what, uh, what, what report SVP comes out with regarding medtech investments. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, though, I mean, we are getting a lot of warnings that the, you know, the second quarter is going to have some grim results, but, you know, hopefully a lot of these companies are right that, uh, you know, we're going to hopefully start to see a, a recovery as we head into the third and, and fourth quarters. And, you know, it's interesting too talking about the future. I mean, you know, these, even right now, the whole focus is, is on the COVID-19 pandemic as it should be. But, you know, these companies aren't giving up on the other stuff they were developing. And, uh, you know, our, uh, our senior editor, Danielle Kirsch, had a, had a really good roundup that we posted on medical design and outsourcing and stepped on mass device about, you know, the, the stuff they're still planning to launch this year. And it's a whole array of things. I mean, they're, I mean, the PMAs, you know, we aren't seeing much of them now. But, you know, these companies really, you know, have all these plans and stuff they want to reveal, uh, you know, later this year, uh, whether it's, you know, Medtronic, you know, you know, whether it's like, you know, trying to do a comeback with, uh, with uh, renal denervation systems to, you know, treat hypertension to, uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson, it's uh, robotic surgery plans. There's, you know, there's, there's stuff, stuff planned this year. People have plans. As people have noted, those, uh, those other conditions that MedTech has historically tried to treat are not going away. So uh, there'll yes, be, unfortunately. be plenty more to do. So, all right, well, that's a wrap for this episode of Device Talks Weekly. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Chris Newmarker, remind our uh, friendly listeners where they can find you and track you down on social media. You can always uh, track me down at, uh, on Twitter, at Newmarker, just like a new marker. I'm on LinkedIn, and you can also email me at cnewmarker at wtwhmedia.com. And I'm on Twitter. You can find me at MedTechTom. I'm also on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. And my email is tsalemi, S-A-L-E-M-I, at wtwhmedia.com. All right, well, that's a wrap. Please uh, make sure you subscribe to this uh, podcast. That way you'll have it sent direct, sent directly to your listening device each and every week. And uh, make sure you tell your friends. Share the, this episode on your social media channels. Connect Chris and I to those posts. We'd love to be part of those conversations. And of course, tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of Device Talks Weekly. And everyone, stay safe. <laughs>